Welcome to episode 197 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. When I was a kid, I used to rush off the school bus into my kitchen and grab the phone off the wall. It had a very, very long cord, so I would run down the hallway with it into my bedroom, where I would proceed to call each of my friends who I hadn't been away from for more than an hour and review our day. These were good friends, the kind that stick with you when things aren't always going your way. I knew I could count on them and they could count on me. Best friends like that are not easy to find as an adult. There are moments when I feel a rush of gratitude toward a friend or even an acquaintance. And lately, I've been having that feeling more and more often. This special moment reminds me of when someone dares to quietly point out he was spinach in your teeth, sparing me further embarrassment. For instance, I was on three Zoom calls in a row the other day, two with clients, and only on the third call did someone mention my sound was very low. Duh, I knew right away that meant my Zoom had the wrong microphone input. Grateful, I quickly fixed the issue, but I was left wondering why my clients hadn't mentioned it. I've paid this favor forward by pointing out when someone is silhouetted witness protection style because they're sitting in front of an open window while on a video call, or when someone's head is just above the bottom of their screen and I can see their ceiling fan more than their face, and take a moment to invite them to adjust their screen's tilt. Or maybe their closet door is open behind them. I gently point it out so they know to push it closed before their next video call. I try to be, there's a spinach in your teeth friend, because now that we're all on video all day, we need to look and sound our best. And if our friends won't help us do that, who will? Your challenge this week. If you notice something's a bit amiss when on a video call with a colleague, take a moment to offer a tip. Don't call them out publicly though. Share a private message or wait until it's just the two of you on the call. Tell them you'd like to know when you have spinach in your teeth too, and invite them to give feedback if ever anything seems a bit off about how you look or sound. Do this because we all need the kind of friends now who will help us look and sound our best. You can be that kind of friend. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest believes that the best leaders develop strengths instead of highlighting weaknesses. He's a corporate trainer, keynote speaker, and leadership strategist for Fortune 500 companies. He's the only Canadian recipient of a TED Education Huffington Post International Education Award for creating innovative learning environments. He's a certified graphotherapist whose TEDx talk, How to Spot a Leader in Their Handwriting, has been viewed over 2 million times. His unique and unusual ability to analyze people's handwriting in less than 60 seconds has been called impressive and a bit frightening by Forbes. His gift allows him to help spot a person's strengths and weaknesses in ways they may not be aware of themselves. He's worked behind the scenes for Saturday Night Live and has appeared on CNN, CTV's The Morning Show, and Forbes as a featured commentator on topics ranging from leadership, personality assessment through handwriting, parenting, and value-based goal setting. Please join me in welcoming Jamie Mason Cohen. Thank you, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Jamie, thanks so much. 
for joining me from your office in Toronto. You know, as we were just talking about a minute ago, this is a show, the context is, you know, building strong networks and leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Wow. So leadership is utilizing your strengths in service of those who you serve. And I learned to lead at first as a teacher because I taught in economically uh, disadvantaged areas of Toronto. And I also taught overseas in Malaysia, where I taught students from various cultures and different backgrounds. And I saw the common theme in my leadership as I learned as I went and I learned from my mistakes was to be more of, as a college professor once wrote, the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. That's really, that's a great quote right there. The guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. Yes. That's memorable. So is that, is that a, a particular attribution to, is it a college professor? Because I feel like I'm going to remember that. Yeah, it was a college professor. It's actually hard to find the exact person who said it, but it was the name of a book that was geared toward teachers in terms of different strategies to become an effective educator. Yeah. So this is really interesting. So the idea is that you have, you have value, you have, you put that value out into the world. It helps other people find their value. You, you're sort of based in this in your expertise and experience within the world of teaching. But I'm imagining, Jamie, that it actually starts even earlier than that. So let's just, let's roll the clock back a little bit to, you know, the playground. Um, those early years, you know, were you the kid organizing everyone, sitting on the sideline? Did you run for office in high school? <laughs> Like, were you popular? Were you like studious and no one knew you? Like, what kind, of, what kind of kid were you? And who were you looking up to when it came to leadership? Like, or, or do people see potential in you? Like, what, what, what was that life like? Well, it's that last point, Robbie, people seeing potential in you. When I was 13 years old, so I was in grade eight uh, in Canada, I went on stage in my drama class to give a soliloquy and I froze. I couldn't get the words out because at that time in my life, I stuttered. When I spoke in front of a group of people, I sometimes could not finish my sentence. And the kids laughed at me. And I came home devastated. I told my mother what happened. And my mother was an educator. And she also did something which I didn't really understand at that point, which was called handwriting analysis. So she could look at someone's writing on the page and see certain traits that corresponded with those marks. It was like your personality on paper. So she looked at my writing and she said, honey, she saw a stroke that looks like a figure eight. So it looks like an eight, a fluid eight. And she said, that's the trait that writers and speakers sometimes possess. Now, I was totally skeptical. I said, mom, are you telling me you can analyze my personality based on a few strokes in the page? That is absurd. Well, I didn't say that last part because my mom is my hero. But what it did is it planted a seed that I could change and that I could grow. And from that moment on, like you said, I started seeing my own potential in this weird, obscure personality assessment tool. And it started when the moment that my mother believed in me before I believed in myself. I have to say, I love origin stories that are not what you expect, because here you are, a very established keynote speaker among you know, in corporate training, among many other talents, you've got this like 2 million views, 2.3 million, I think, on your TEDx. And you're telling me 
that you had a stutter and would freeze doing a talk when you were mm-hmm. 13 years old. And I'm sure nobody in that moment was thinking, this is the future that Jamie's going to have. You didn't think it, but your mother gave you some confidence by, by seeing into the possibilities, by giving you something to hold on to. Like that's, that's what parents should be doing for all their kids. Like it's so good. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, so where, what did you think you were going to grow up to be if it wasn't a speaker? Since clearly that wasn't like, you were not excited about that at that moment. Well, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I loved film and I grew up in an environment where I was encouraged to be creative because that was, I was very sensitive as a kid, but that sensitivity also manifested in really wanting to explore the world and, and create art, especially uh, visual art. And so I went off and I called Lauren Michaels' office 25 times. So Lauren Michaels is the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. I called his office 25 times when I graduated from a college in my area, the province of Ontario, where it's about two hours from Toronto. And I ended up getting a one-on-one meeting with Lauren Michaels. Okay. I read about this actually. I, one of the, my favorite places to find out about people is a, is, it's a little obscure, but people don't often update their Amazon author bio. <laughs> and so you can find out what was important to them a few years ago. <laughs> so you wrote about that there. Um, it's also, I think I saw it on your speaker page. This is an incredible story. So here you are, like early 20s. Yeah. No, nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. How did you keep going? Like 25 phone calls. I just talked to a client who made one call each to 20 people and thinks the strategy won't work. And okay. you made 25 calls to one person. Now, you know, you knew it would be hard to get on his radar. Mm-hmm. He, he, was, yeah. he was not in your immediate reach. But how did you persevere? Like, there's something about, you know, a can-do-ness that you had possessed. Is this also a, a parental infusion from how you grew up? Yes. And I think it's also the belief that if we're in a direction that our instincts are telling us is in the right place, if our heart and our intention are in the right place, when we constantly ask ourselves, is this what I really want? And I really felt at that stage in my life, I had nothing to lose. The worst he could say is no or ignore me. And I ended up connecting with his assistant at the time. And this woman said to me, what she she said in a nice way she said jamie at about the 24th call what would it take for you to stop calling because i enjoy your calls but come on already and i said thank you for asking she never had asked so i said i'd like to write a handwritten note send it to you and i would just ask kindly if you put it on the top of his pile because he i would find out later gets a pile very large i'm making with my hands of people like me who are more accomplished than me, who are American, so they don't have the visa issues that I had, who wanted by any means to try to get in that environment. And she did, to her word, I sent it to her with a little bit of chocolates to bribe her, Swiss chocolates. And I got a call back three months later from who I thought was one of my friends playing a prank on me because I had told anyone who had listened that I was going to go 
like uh, we talk about the the uh, the secrets and vision boards. I had this vision that I was going to be there, and I told everybody. So I thought it was one of my friends doing the Doctor Evil impression in the Austin Powers movie because Mike Myers was rumored to have based the character of Doctor Evil on Lorne Michaels, and there is some similarities. So I hear on the other end of the phone, uh, "Hi, is uh, James Cohen there, please?" So I said, "Dude." I thought it was my friend Jeremy. I go, Jer, that's not funny. I know you're trying to imitate Lauren Michaels. And I hear this pregnant pause that seemed to last an eternity on the other end of the line. And then in that silence, ah, uh, no, it's uh, Lauren Michaels. How can I help you? And I don't swear, nor will I swear here, but you can imagine what I was saying under my breath. Oh my God. And... I don't remember exactly what I said, but I ended up in about 90 seconds. And it's a good lesson in networking, which we can get to later, about having the improvised ability to have something prepared and not always ad-libbed, which means you never thought it would ever happen. And in that moment, I improvised asking him if I could come and meet with him for 15 minutes because I believed I had something of value to add. And I said it with all the sincerity that someone just out of college would say. And hopefully I would say it now. And he said, to my surprise, yes, you can come and see me. Wow. Like, there's so much good in this story. Um, There's a lot of audacity. (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, I, I, you know, around that age, uh, I, I ran, uh, I was New York State coordinator for a national campaign. And at the end of this year-long campaign, my boss, who was the deputy director of the statewide group we were working for, said I would never have taken that job, meaning the role that I had had, because yeah. he knew what, it, what potential pitfalls were there and all the politics. And of course, I was this like grad student excited to be there. So there is something which like the, the nothing to lose, you know, um, but I'm still, I honestly, to tell you, Jamie, I'm so struck by the fact that you called for 25 times, that you built a relationship with the front desk person, who, the receptionist, you know, yeah. to the point where she was on your side and just wanted to give you a little bit of an edge. I mean, um, a lot of people, they think three phone calls is too many. They can't imagine annoying people that much. They, they don't want to work that hard. They want someone just to reply quickly. Um, that That's tremendous. And of course, that pivots and changes your whole career trajectory because now forever you're an SNL alum, right? You're like, you're, you're part of that network. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I just went back there and gave a talk to a meeting planner group and I stopped at my old work environment and I'm seeing people that I work with several decades ago as if it was yesterday. And so the discomfort, I once heard a quote I really like, which is successful people do the thing that unsuccessful people are unwilling to do. And that was one of the lines that I remember using, putting right up on my wall at that time, which was this, this was not comfortable, but in a good way, there's, there's, there's discomfort that is not healthy. There's discomfort also that can help propel you forward. If you know, again, if you're clear on what your intention is and where you see yourself, And I just kept this vision. And one other thing that helped me get through that when I didn't have a lot of life experience at 22 was movies and books. And if there's times, if someone young is watching this or even someone 
who is looking for a transition, as I've had several in my life, I sometimes look to the books and the movies where characters may have been in fictional worlds, but I can get inspiration. So I look to Michael J. Fox in the movie Secret of My Success, and I saw myself, because he's Canadian, even though in the, in the movie he's playing someone from Kansas, I thought saw of myself as somewhere between Michael J. Fox and Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. And I thought, I am going to do what Michael J. Fox did. I am going to call, like he did, many times. I don't know if it was 25, but it was many times, until the assistant, in some way or another, said, okay, I respect you, even though this is a little bit annoying, and I'm going to let you see the box. And that was my inspiration. And Dorothy saying, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. And so the Toto, the intuition in me, which some say Toto represents, was I've got to keep going home until I get there. I happen to be a huge Michael J. Fox fan, which is something I've never talked about on this show. Like huge fan when I was growing up. I love that movie, you know, going from the mailman, uh, the the mail mail office, whatever, all the way up you know, to the C-suite. And I think you're right. Like knowing that someone can do that gives you a roadmap, a blueprint, um, a possibility. It's not like, even though it's fictionalized, it seems like, well, that could work. And of course, you know, you, again, you were like, why not? (laughs) Um, Now you didn't stay there forever. You weren't there for three decades. Mm -hmm. You know, gone are the careers where you just like, you know, go into one factory and come out in retirement. So, what led next in this? Like, where did you where did you end up with all of this learning that you you took with you? Yeah, that, and that's a great transition because this was a transition. Is that sometimes what you think of as a crisis is actually an opportunity? Like the ideogram is crisis equals opportunity. And for me, I was devastated when my visa expired, and it was very hard to get a visa after nine eleven, and right after nine eleven. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? So I came back to Toronto after having what I thought was the ideal trajectory in in a field that I wanted. And yet, Robbie, as it turned out, sometimes, uh, as the expression goes, you fall upward. So for me, as much as I like being in in this world of entertainment, I found the right path next, which was teaching. So my mother was a teacher, retired teacher, and my sister was a teacher and she worked as a choreographer and they had a sort a sort of intervention with me. They said, look, we know I was doing a lot of freelance work. I was working uh, for the major sports networks and doing these, these segments that you'd see on a sports station on basketball players and hockey players and directing commercials and some music videos that I didn't really feel comfortable with some of the content that I was asked to actually shoot. And I said, this isn't really who I am. So just because I had seen myself in my 20s as the film guy, this is my path, that also can change. And so I I listened to myself again, and I listened to where my intention was, what my purpose was telling me. And I read a book at the time, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who survived the concentration camps and ended up coming up with a concept called logotherapy, which was that there was three main areas, but that a person can find themselves in another person. So giving themselves fully to another person in nature or in their suffering. And so for me, it was most appropriate. What really resonated with me in my life at the time was I wanted to find myself 
like I said at the beginning, which what leadership was in putting my strengths in service of those I wanted to serve. And so teaching seemed to be something that I was naturally good at. And I think it's important, regardless of if you're starting out in your career or you're transitioning, asking yourself first, you know, what, what am I good at in terms of what are my strengths in helping other people? And you may not always have the answer. You may ask people who you really trust and know, and they may be able to help see or shed light on you in ways that you might not have always thought because you had this tunnel vision like I had. So I went to teacher's college. I almost got kicked out because they said I was too creative. They wanted me to stay. Literally, they wanted me to, you know, do the textbook. And I wanted to put on, um, instead of reading about um, African-Canadian slaves during, um, just after uh, Canada was founded, I wanted to bring my friends in who were professional actors and help act it out and incorporate all the students in the entire school. And I, and I, I wanted dirt brought in so that they could, and another section so that we could recreate what the actual environment looked like for Laura Secord. And the teacher in middle school said, no, no, you can't do that. But I survived. I made it through teacher's college and I ended up teaching teachers how to teach. So I was considered to be uh, a Canadian version of Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. That's what I was described as. That was the greatest compliment I ever got. But that led to helping other people in a way, being the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. I love that books and movies have been an inspiration for you at all these major points and that you can recall what it was that you took from each of them. Yes. And I think, um, you know, in this more digitized age that we find ourselves, people seem to forget that good old books, you know, whether paper or ebook or audio are a source of inspiration and knowledge. There's a lot of, a lot of self-knowledge that you can get from these books um, before you seek out professional support um, to continue in your journey. So I just wanted to sort of underscore that because I think, you know, it's clearly played a role in your life. Um, and that is actually a really great compliment that you just mentioned with Robin Williams. Um, and one that you should have engraved somewhere because, you know, things like that should be held on to. Um, you know, I feels like that's also when you realize that instead of being behind a camera, which is what you thought you were going to be doing, that you could actually hold space in a different way. And the teaching and adding value in that way, I think that makes a natural progression to where you ended up. When did you realize it was time for you to, I want to use the word, go out on your own because it feels like you were never really alone in all of this. <laughs> but when did you decide that you were going to establish your own business and not go work for somebody else? Two and a half years ago. And what I learned was I really enjoyed many parts of teaching in terms of the presentation about moving people with words, with helping them see their own value and growing. So that part of it I loved. I didn't love other parts of the job. And any job has its things that you like about it and don't. But like you said, I, well, what you may have alluded to, working for other people, I felt like I wanted to grow in ways that in a system, there was only so, so far I could grow. There was only so much that I could do. And so I made a challenging decision at the time, but it turned out to be the right one. I can follow my heart and intention. I wanted to teach. I just wanted to teach in some ways on my own terms and have the capacity to grow. And so I then transitioned to 
slowly the the years before that so three years previous to that i had started speaking at teaching events for free uh, over 150 of them in various capacities in the summers i was constantly seeking out other people who were doing what i wanted to do either online in a way that i didn't feel was too pushy asking a question going to seminars whatever i could to absorb as much information as possible I wrote a book about my teaching experiences. I did a TEDx talk, which happened because I was uh, fortunate to be honored with this international teaching award by TED Education and Huffington Post. And they flew me to New Orleans to talk about what I did, not on the main stage, but it was more of like in a workshop setting in the tent in the back where, where Ashton Kutcher was at the front, but I still was there and I won this award. And from that led to a TEDx talk. So the one of the heads of TED, the, like the TED, said to me, do you want to do a TEDx talk? I said, of course I do. That's one of my goals. And then she said, okay. She introduced me to a few people around the world. And I ended up doing a TEDx talk in Luxembourg. So when I did that talk, my goal was to, to do something that, of course, it was for me. I also wanted to do something that could resonate with people around the world, diverse communities that no matter who watches this video, this 18 minutes, you could get something from it. And to my delight, it has resonated because I, to this day, it was six years ago, uh, April uh, 2014, almost six years ago, I get emails from people from Vietnam, from the United States, from all over the world who are asking me about themselves, about finding their purpose in life, about, about their strengths, about their weaknesses, about all these different areas. And so that was all before I actually left teaching. So I didn't talk much about it. I don't think you should explain your side uh, passion too much. You should put all, most of your energy into actually doing it. And then by the time I left, I had built a pretty solid foundation to then move forward, to move from strength to strength even though it's a, as you know, it can be quite an uncertain world compared to a nine to five job where, you know, everything, every skit, I knew where my classes were. I knew who my students were. I knew when my paycheck would come and this world has paid off, even though I still have great respect for people who work in a nine to five environment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that whole piece. I, I think that there's um, a lot of value in the lesson you did around the three years before you left building up sort of your, you know, strengths in that side hustle. Um, the fact that you did, you know, won that award, leveraged it into a TEDx, which then of course took off. Um, but you were, <clears throat> you did 150 speaking engagements for no money in a three year time period, which is tremendous. <laughs> um, so again, this goes back to, your willingness to do our, set audacious goals and meet them. Um, 25 phone calls, 150, 50 talks a year, you know, pro bono. Because you're like, I got it. And, and, you know, reps on the stage is what makes you a really good uh, speaker, a good performer, um, as, as Michael Port would say. So it's really, it's good to, um, to have all of that. And, I, and Dory Clark once said to me, you'll know when it's time to leave your job when it gets in the way of your business. Hmm. I like that. You know, I like her. Yeah. <laughs> right. She's great. I like so Dory too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, there's a, it's like you're, you're doing so much good stuff with your business that your job's sort of like getting in the way of it. Um, 
And it feels like that's kind of the, the point, the inflection point that you reached two and a half years ago. The question I have is, you're a leadership strategist for Fortune 500 companies. You've got this wacky background for that. Like, this is not like, yeah, and I came up through Wall Street, you know? <laughs> like, so, I, and I, I have all these buddies from business school. Like, you don't have what I would think of as an easy way in to that audience, to those buyers, to those client lists. How did you make that shift from, you know, you know the SNL stuff, then you're teaching, and suddenly you're a leadership strategist for Fortune 500 companies. Like, how did, how, did, how did you make that happen? Well, I think leadership development is personal development. So every person that a speaker speaks with, in my case, my focus is more Fortune 500 companies, although I do speak with college audiences and other audiences as well. Every audience wants to improve their performance. They want to develop their emotional intelligence in some level. I mean, that I'm speaking with. Not every audience does, but in the audiences that I do. And when you get beneath the veneer of whatever title they have, senior vice president at Sun Life Financial or a top meeting planner, they're human beings. They're people who have vulnerabilities. They have fears. They have hopes. They have purpose or they're looking for purpose. And I think what I have continue to really zone in on and focus on is how we get beneath the surface to really tap into what their strengths are so that they don't become liabilities if they're overextended, overused, or overdependent on, and we can grow that and we can develop what makes them a significant force in the world in terms of their purpose and how they can contribute to others. So having a corporate background is absolutely a plus. When I see speakers who have this envious level of experience, I think, well, that would be really helpful. I also know that my different paths, and this goes for anybody out there who wants to say, well, how can they um, take what they're good at and transition to other areas in their life? And I'm going to transition into something Um, very recent as an example that's relevant on several levels is what I learned is when you walk into a room, whether it's a networking event, whether it's a speaking event, is is give yourself a break that you have a lot to offer this room. And don't make the immediate assumption about yourself that somehow you don't belong because the people may have a different specialty. And I'd love to transition into an example of that. Go for it. Yeah. I was recently in Amsterdam this, this past month, and I was asked by a founder of a health tech startup. So this goes right into what you just said. What am I doing consulting with a health technology startup? There's three things that I haven't done. I'm not a doctor. I have not done my own startup, even though I am my own startup by virtue of being a speaker, but I haven't started a company like a startup. And I'm not, I mean, I'm okay with technology. I won a technology award, but it's not my area of strength. A friend of mine who worked at IBM for many, many years started this company and he was pitching like the show Shark Tank or Dragon's Den in Canada in front of all of these CEOs of the largest health providers in Amsterdam and Netherlands and these heads of pharmaceutical companies. And he asked me if I would be 
his go-to right-hand person while we go and pitch. And I said, okay, I took the challenge on. And I walked in at first and I had to listen to my own advice. I had to walk my talk about saying, I belong here. I don't know how, because there's a room full of doctors, math PhDs, artificial artificial intelligence geniuses who all speak like 17 languages and me. And yet I realized that once we started presenting, that I knew how to pitch. I knew how to hold, hold space in the room and present. I knew how to teach that to the founder of the company who had strengths, but this may not have been his number one strength. I knew, Robbie, about emotional intelligence, about self, having self-awareness, knowing yourself from the inside out, self-management, the ability, the ability to understand how you feel and make sure that your feelings work for you and sublimate them in, in, a, in purpose of a greater goal and not let them work against you. I knew about social awareness and I knew about relationship management. And I looked around the room and I said, aha, everyone here could benefit from my energy, from my input. And that's what happened because the founder won. He was one of eight companies selected from around the world out of 3,800 initially who, who were in this in this of companies. And he was one of eight. And you know what they said was one of the main reasons they chose his particular company? The team. They said the team. And I looked around and I said, I'm looking around by the way, right now. I looked around and I was the only one on the team. It was me and him. So if, if they chose the team, they weren't just looking for this stunning Steve Jobs, Elon Musk prototype. They were looking for the diversity of the strengths in that space. And I then walked out of that room knowing I had something of value that I added. And that's what you can learn from that. No matter who you are, you have that thing that other people in the room don't have. And it's your job to find out what it is. Right. Because so many people would freeze. Either they wouldn't take the opportunity. They would just turn it down. Yeah. They would get in their own head about it and not perform very well. You know, they would stifle their genius because it didn't fit the, the norms of the space, right? They wouldn't, I think part of what you bring in and I, you know, I could ask you at fortune 500 cause it's a hard nut to crack. You bring in difference, a difference of opinion, experience, know-how. And I believe that having a diverse network is great because innovation happens on the, on the sort of edges of our network. You know, like if everyone agrees with you, you won't get a lot of new ideas. <laughs> um, you have to look at someone who has a pretty different career path or history or experience or something, and then draw from that something that you could apply to your own world. And it sounds like you had to have that conversation in your own head that I can do that in this space, even though I'm surrounded by people who seem like in so many ways, like, amazing. I'm amazing. I bring something that they don't have. I'm going to figure out what that is. And before we came on air, you were telling me that you actually, and I, this is just self-promotion for me, but I'm loving this feedback that you had read my book, which thank you. I don't actually expect every guest to do that. I love that you did. And that my croissants versus bagels um, metaphor was very applicable to this like awkward room of people standing around, not knowing quite what to do with themselves. Yes. It was profound and practical. 
Now, I told you the outcome. Before that, all the founders and, and their teams were put into a room. Now, you have a diverse group of people from all over the world, Europe, Asia, Amsterdam, uh, no, sorry, um, United States, everywhere. People speaking different languages, don't know each other. And yet, everybody was just kind of standing and trying to figure out what to say. Was this competition? Should they, what should they say? So I saw that as an opportunity to put into practice what I read in your book, Croissant versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. And what I did was I told a story. And as I was telling that story, I, and in your book, you talk about body language, is I was shifting into a croissant. So the croissant was moving and creating space from how I interpret it so that other people who may have felt outside of the bagel, like that tight circle, that they came in. And then what happened was I was you know telling a short story, but then I realized nobody else was really engaging with other people. They weren't sure how. I'm sure they wanted to. And so everybody started joining my croissant. And some of them were from France, ironically. And so here we were, they all were coming in and they all were listening. And I was making eye contact with different people and I was talking with them. And one one individual from one of the uh, startups said to me, what you just did there, I noticed something that you just did. I said, what's that? And he said, you brought everybody into this. And the next thing I knew, I didn't even realize, literally all eight startups, they all were making this circle, including the CEO of the VC. And I said, yeah, it's actually a concept that I saw put into practice by a friend of mine who wrote a book called Croissant versus Bagels. And I saw him actually do it at a conference and we were all talking about it. But more importantly, the people at this conference we were both at, this mastermind conference, we were doing it after he demonstrated it. So what I loved about Croissant and Bagel versus Bagels was it's memorable, it's practical, it's immediately implementable. These are some of the things Fortune 500 companies like. And it, and it, and it, I learned something extremely valuable because in that moment, I wasn't sure either how to engage a group of people who were different than me and actually bring people in. And that's what your idea, this brilliant analogy and metaphor, but it's more tangible than just a story, helped me to connect with everybody in that room. That I, you know, you create content in the world, uh, right? As a content creator, you and I both know it's rare to get such direct feedback about how it's impacting someone's life. So thank you for that. And thank you for just illustrating to everyone listening how they can take a simple concept like this and and act it out in their own life. And if anyone wants a visual, I actually did a TEDx. It has not yet hit 2 million views. You know, I'm working on that, but you'll find it at, uh, it's on YouTube at Hate Networking, Stop Bageling and Be the Croissant. Hashtag stop bagling. So <laughs> this has been a really fun conversation. My wrap-up question for you, which is one of my favorite, is so if we were meeting a year from now and we were uh, talking about all of the amazing accomplishments that you'd had in the previous year, what would we be celebrating? Being a present father for my 
son for my daughter on a daily basis. So I wouldn't say it's one big accomplishment. I would say if we met, which I hope we do have a chance to speak then, is if you ask me, how are you showing up every day as a father? Uh, that my answer would be ingenuously uh, that I could really feel and I wouldn't call it an accomplishment. It's even hard for me to put into words, but I was a present father. And that to me is my, not just who I am now, but it's what I want to be in my legacy. And I think it happens. I think you can tell a lot about a person, not just by their accomplishments, but how they spend their days. And so we're talking a lot about the professional. And I think ultimately it's the legacy that we have on the people around us. In my case, in my particular case, I want to be a present father each and every day. Man, you make me feel bad because whenever I get asked a question like this, I never think to start with my own family. And it's so true. Like what I want to be known for legacy wise is definitely, you know, goes back to my own kids. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter is six and my son is eight. Well, I have a two and four year old, so you're ah, just a little ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in the thick of it. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Beautifully exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any, any business aspirations that you can say, I will have had this happen in the, in the next year? I would say just growth. Um, each year I've grown uh, quite significantly. And this year, my goal, which I hope to not quite reach, because I think goals are always good if they're like Everest, they're a little bit higher, but I will have done uh, over 40 keynotes this year. Um, And so that's a significant jump from a year ago, which I did about 30. And so I would say in a year, or the next time we speak on a professional level, is to exceed the 40 per year keynote mark. That's that's a good goal to, to reach for. That's fantastic. I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. Um, yeah. I am excited that we had this conversation, Jamie. I'm thrilled that we were able to share your story. And uh, I want to know, how can people find you and follow your work? Thanks. Yeah, if they just go to my website, which is uh, jamiemasoncohen.com. Great. And we'll also have that link in our show notes as well as links to your LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll find all of that at ontheschmooze.com. Jamie, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Robbie. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamie. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 197. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If virtual events are a part of your business plan, you need to keep improving your skills when it comes to online facilitation and virtual event design. I can help you do that next cohort of the 5% Advantage program kicks off on June 12th. Learn more and register at the5percentadvantage.com. That's the number five, the5percentadvantage.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Jamie, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so don't miss next week's show. 
Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.